Thank you so much for joining us today at our Savior's Church, where we are one church meeting in five different locations. And our goal is to help you on your spiritual journey to know God, find freedom, discover purpose, and make a difference in the lives around you. If you'd like to learn more about our Savior's Church or how to get involved, visit us online at OurSavior'sChurch.com. Well, good morning. Good morning. And as always, we are so grateful. Did you enjoy the Putting God First series? We started off the year. We reminded you that if you wanted this to be the best year of your life, how many of you want it to be the best year of your life, that it had to be the best year of your life spiritually? Why? Because you are a spiritual being created in the image of God, having a temporary physical experience on earth. You're a spiritual being that's eternal, having a temporary physical experience on earth. In our next series we begin today, and it is the last words of Jesus from the cross. I don't know if you've ever been with someone when they were at the end of their life. As a pastor, I've had the privilege of being with many people when they literally took their last breath. And it's, it's an honor to be there, but most often in those moments, when they're not on a lot of medication, most often in those moments, people say things that are incredibly important. As a matter of fact, they say some of the most significant things of their entire life, just in the last final moments of their life. Today, I want to begin by giving you a handful of people who are some of the most famous unbelievers or agnostic or atheists, and some of the most famous believers in all of history. The first one is Thomas Paine. He was a signer of the Declaration of Independence and an avowed agnostic. An agnostic is someone who really doesn't know what they believe. Someone called an agnostic a lazy atheist. Here is what he said on his deathbed. Stay with me for God's sakes. I can't bear to be left alone. Oh God, help me. What have I done? to suffer so much. What will become of me in the hereafter? I would give all the world had not, not written a book against Christianity and the Bible called the age of reason. Oh Lord, help me. Christ, help me. Don't leave me alone. Stay with me. Send even a child to stay with me for I'm on the edge of hell here alone. If the devil ever had an agent, it was me. The second one is Voltaire, a famous French author and atheist. Here were his last words. I am abandoned by God and man. I will give half of my worth if you will give me six months to live, he told his doctor. His doctor responded, that wasn't possible. Voltaire responded, then I shall die and go to hell. His bedside nurse said, for all the money in Europe, I would never again watch an atheist die. Let me give you one a little more contemporary Anton LaVey, the author of the Satanic Bible and the founder of the Satanic Church. He died in 1997, and here are his last reported words. Oh my, oh my, what have I done? There's something very wrong. There's something wrong. And that was before he got to hell. And let me just say something about hell. Because oftentimes people think that that hell is something that priests and pastors use to bash people over their head, to manipulate them, to to either get them to be guilted into going to church or or guilted into giving. I want to share something with you. Number one, Jesus made it very plain that hell was never, ever created for people. Did you know that? 
Jesus told us that hell was only created for the devil and his angels because they didn't want to be under God's rule and authority. And when Satan fell from heaven, one third of the angels fell with him. They are now angels or spirits without bodies. We know them as demons. Demons. Oftentimes when people do horrific things, you'll hear them say this, I heard voices. What? Speaking to me. They were telling me to to shoot someone. They were telling me to kill myself. They were, who do you think those voices are? How many of you believe that there is a heaven? How many of you want to go? Okay, where the rest of you going to go? Do so? Okay, there is. And if there is a heaven, then there is a... So do you know what hell is? The Bible tells us that God is three things. That he is love that he is light and that he is life. He is love, he is light, and he is life. All right? What is the opposite of love? What is the opposite of light? What is the opposite of life? Do you know what hell is? Hell is simply the only place that God is not. And when people say, God, I don't want you in my life, you can't pray that on earth. You still get God's sunshine. You still get his air. You still get beautiful days like today as a gift from God, whether you appreciate it or not. You still get every good thing that God gives in all of creation and relationships. You still get those if you live on earth. But when you die, if you don't want God in your life, when you die, God finally answers your prayer. And he sends you to the only place that is not. And by the way, listen to me. God has done everything in his power to keep you from going to hell. As a matter of fact, he did what nobody here would do. He gave his perfect, sinless, spotless son to suffer the gruelest death known to mankind. To make a statement to the world. I would rather have my son go through that than have you go to hell. I just got the free songs. Now, here are the final words of many well-known Christians at their passing. William Wilberforce is single-handedly credited for ending, ending slavery in Great Britain. It was 20 years that he was in Parliament fighting it until he finally won a victory. Here's what he said. My affections are so much in heaven that I can leave you without one regret, he said at his death. Yet I do not love you less. I just love God more. John Newton, former slave trader who was converted and wrote the amazing song, Amazing Grace, said this in his final words, I am still in the land of the dying, but I will soon be in the land of the living. John Wesley, co-founder of the Methodist Church with his brother Charles, said this, The best of all, God is with us. Farewell. D.L. Moody, the Billy Graham of the 1800s, the great evangelist, still has Moody Institute, which is a Bible college today, and Moody Church in Chicago, said this at his death, I see earth receding, heaven is opening, God is calling me. Andrew Jackson General and seventh president of the United States said at his death, my dear children, do not grieve for me. I am God's. I belong to him. I go but a short time before you and I hope and trust to meet you in heaven. William Booth, founder of the Salvation Army, pastor and evangelist, 
said this on his dying words. He looked at his son who was beside him, Branwell, and said, Branwell, all the homeless children, Branwell, my son, look after the homeless. Promise me, promise me. And then Pastor John Harper, he was called the pastor of the Titanic. You want to read his story? It's in a book called The Last Hero of the Titanic. He was a Scottish Baptist preacher who was on his way from Great Britain on the Titanic to go and preach at Moody Church, the church founded by D.L. Moody, who I just quoted. He preached there the summer before, and he was going with his daughter and his niece. When the Titanic began to sink, he wrapped his daughter and his niece and he put them in a lifeboat. And then he began preaching to people and leading people to Christ, ushering them into boats. And when they ran out of boats, because they ran out, there was a thousand people floating in the water with life preservers in the icy waters. He went around floating from person to person saying, are you saved? Are you saved? And for every person that wasn't saved, he said, believe on Jesus and ask him to forgive you and you'll be saved. His last recorded words were, he swam up to a man who didn't have a life preserver and he said, are you saved? He said, no. He said, then you need this worse than me. And he gave him the life preserver. And his last words before he went down was, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Today, we're going to look at seven statements of the most famous words in all of history. They're found beginning in Luke chapter 23, verse 34, Let's read this passage together. It's from this that we get this famous phrase that Jesus spoke, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they do. In Luke chapter 23, verse 34, it says this. Let's read it together. And while they were nailing Jesus to the cross, while they were nailing him, hammer in hand, nail being pierced to his flesh, while they were nailing Jesus to the cross, he prayed over and over. What did he pray? Father, forgive them for they do not know what they are doing. What, what is Jesus teaching us here? What is he teaching us? Jesus was God in the flesh. There's God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. But even at his moment of suffering, he recognized he needed his Father. And listen to what he says. Father, forgive them. What is he saying? He's saying the source of forgiveness is found in God the Father, not in you or me. You see, the premise of forgiveness is God has given me what I do not deserve, so I give to others what they do not deserve. You say, but pastor, you don't understand. I was abused. Pastor, a man beat me and left me. Pastor, my daddy walked out on my family. Pastor, I was fired because of my skin color, because of my education. You, you don't understand. I, I don't have it in me to forgive someone who did that to me. Listen carefully to me. It's true, you don't. But can I tell you something about Christianity and about this book that's different than every other religion in the entire world? Okay, how many of you know what WWJD stands for? What would Jesus do? Okay, we know that, all right? But it's actually much deeper than that. You, you know, a Muslim could wear a bracelet. What would Muhammad do? A Buddhist could wear a bracelet. What would Buddha do? Christianity is the only religion that actually believed that its founder died 
rose from the dead three days later, and currently resides inside every one of his believers. Christianity is the only religion that actually believes that their leader lives inside of them. Muslims don't believe Muhammad lives inside of them. Buddhists don't believe that Buddha lives inside of them. But Christians believe that just as Jesus died and was dead for three days and then was raised from the dead, that we were spiritually dead. And that when we surrender our lives to Christ by being born again, we go from being spiritually dead and the same spirit that raised him from the dead raises you and me from the dead. Why am I saying that? Because you don't have it in you to forgive. But you're not the author of forgiveness and you're not the source of forgiveness. He is. He is. So so, so let, let me say this practically. God is the originator and author of forgiveness, so he gives forgiveness. It comes to me from God, so it can go through me to others. God gives forgiveness to you, so he can give forgiveness. God gives forgiveness so he can give forgiveness. And it may not be in you, but it is in Christ, and Christ is living in you. But the part that really gets me about this verse, this is the Passion Translation, and I, I, whenever I'm studying a passage, I'll, I'll go through many different translations. If you don't have the U version of the Bible on your phone, it's free. Download it. It'll give you about 50 different translations that you can look through. But this is the part that gets me in this verse. While they were nailing him to the cross. In other words, when he is experiencing the most excruciating pain ever known to mankind, where he is taking upon himself the sin of the whole world. Have you ever felt guilty for something you did wrong? How many of you hate it? Imagine the guilt and sin of the whole world on you. And while he is in the middle of embracing all of this as his responsibility to become the sacrifice lamb of God who would take away the sins of the world, it's there at that moment. And this is point number two that he begins to pray over and over. And this is the second thing Jesus teaches us. I must continually process my pain with my father if I'm going to forgive it. You know what the truth is? When we're hurt, we're going to tell somebody. Let me tell you what Sharika did to me. Let me tell you what T-Boy did. He lives next door to me. He well knows that I was there and he invited everybody to that crawfish bowl and he didn't invite me. He well, okay, you, 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 you put all of the things that you desire. You're going to tell somebody. And that's why I love that this passage said over and over and over. How many times do I forgive somebody, Pastor Jacob, every time that it comes to your mind and heart? Over and over and over. You see, even while people are hurting me, many of you know that Michelle and I, seven years ago, lost a 20-year-old son who who was run over I was on a motorcycle in front of the Grand 14. And at that time when that happened, our pastor came in, Pastor Jim LaFoon, our pastor, and he said, you're not going to preach for a while. 
said, what do you mean? He said, I don't even want you attending your church. So I said, well, how long? He said, well, three months. So for three months, we went to the best grief counseling in America. We flew to Colorado. We flew to Utah. We've all these different places getting the best grief counseling to process this. During that time, I learned something that I didn't know, even though I'd experienced a lot of brokenness from my dad being married five times, my mom two times, the man she married to my dad married seven times, my sister's pregnant 13, 14, 15, all four of them. I learned a lot about trauma growing up by virtue of its experience, but I didn't realize there was a difference in trauma. When you experience a deep pain and suffering, it's called psychosomatic trauma. And even though it happened to you 20 years ago, you can remember it like it happened to you two minutes ago. Because it releases a chemical in your brain that actually makes that stay with you. You you know how you go to the grocery store and you forget what you went to the grocery store to get, but you can remember what somebody did to you wrong 10 years ago in detail? Why? Psychosomatic trauma. I'm going to show you in just a moment from the word of God how to deal with that and how to heal with that. But here's something that you need to know. You might not like me saying this to you, but it's true. I must pour out my pain to the only one who truly loves me and understands me, even if the pain is unjust. Did Jesus do anything wrong? Not at all. Not at all. He is the only one that can say, I never did anything wrong. You know, oftentimes people go, Pastor, if there really was a God, and he was really a just God, why is all this suffering in the world? Why doesn't God stop war and abortion and murder and euthanasia and infanticide and abuse? Why doesn't he stop all of that? I want to remind you, the world's never been what God wanted it to be since the fall of man in the garden. And God could stop it all. God could stop all the suffering in the world just like that in one moment. All he's got to do is one thing. Look right here. Remove everybody in the world that has ever done something to cause them or somebody else to suffer or anyone that has the potential to do that. I have one question. Where would you be if he removed everyone capable of that or that had done that? One day there is going to be a world with no suffering. (laughs) One day there's going to be a world where there is justice. One day there's going to be a world where there's nothing but peace. When Jesus comes back and he makes a new heaven and a new earth and his prayer is finally answered and his will is done on earth exactly like it's done in heaven. So pastor, what do I do with injustices? What do I do with suffering? Hebrews 5.8 says this, although he, Jesus, was a, a what? Who never had been to his father, he, he learned active and special obedience through, through what he suffered. Listen to me. Suffering in life is not an option, but learning and growing from it is. Learning and growing from it is, it is. Here's the third thing we learn from this verse. 
for they do not know what they do. Say that with me. For they, what they do. What is Jesus teaching us? I cannot attribute the worst motive to those who hurt me. I can't attribute the worst motive to those who hurt me. There's something about God. They knew it. Yes, they yeah, They did. They knew exactly what they. They no. Don't tell. No. No. Don't. Uh, no. Let me. Uh, let me tell. I'm gonna be telling. They know. Somehow, when we do things wrong, we judge ourselves by our motives, but other people by their actions. We judge ourselves by, no, you, you told me that you hated me. What I really meant to say is not I hate you. What I really meant is I hate what you're doing. I know, but you said I hate you. I know, but that's not what I meant. But you said you were leaving me. I know, but I really didn't mean that I would leave in you. I really meant I was going to the circle. Okay. <laughs> we always judge ourselves by what we meant but others by what they do. So when Jesus says, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. Remember, Jesus is the only person being God that actually knew the thoughts of the soldiers that were nailing him to the cross. He's the only one that actually could look at them and go, I know exactly what they're thinking. I know exactly what they mean. And even in the midst of that, Jesus looked at them, the only person that's ever been innocent, receiving the worst death known to mankind. And he went, Father, you and I know they don't even know what they're doing. So let me ask you a question. How many of you here have ever hurt someone before and you didn't know it? Raise your hand. True story. A businessman was running through a busy airport to catch a flight. He had an RV. You know what an RV is? He didn't know it, but I'm telling him what he had. And he saw some Mrs. Fields cookies. How many of you remember Mrs. Fields cookies? Okay. They're not as good as Caroline's cookies, but until Caroline gets to the airport, okay, we'll stick to Mrs. Fields. And so he stopped and he opened up his, his briefcase and he pulled out his wallet and he bought a big old Mrs. Fields cookies and he put it in there and he closed his briefcase and he ran and he got on the flight and Strapped in, flight taxi, took off, and he kind of settled back beside him and seated right next to him. He was white, was an African-American woman. And so he opens up his briefcase and he pulls out his cookie and he starts eating it. He takes one bite and the lady beside him reaches down and she breaks off a part of his cookie and she takes a bite. What do you think he was thinking? Come on, white people. Now, I'm a Mexican. I'm just watching this go by. <laughs> Remember, I got a brown body, a black soul, and a white heart. I have a white wife and an African-American daughter. So shut up. <laughs> Me and Joseph got in an argument one day at the DMB. He didn't like me to tell about it, but it scarred me. I've been in counseling over it. He was probably 20. I was going to help him get all of the flags off of his driver's license from letting his insurance lapse. Come on, parents, you know what I'm talking about? 
little demonized children. So we go to the DMV, and now they have these cool DMVs. You pull in there, and they get paid for it. This is the actual DMV on Evangeline Thruway. Okay, I am Protestant, and I don't believe in purgatory, but if there is a place called purgatory on earth, it's the DMV. And so I'm standing there in line at the DMV. Okay, I got a wad of cash because they don't take none but cash. Straight green cash. They don't take Bitcoin. They take cash. And so I'm standing there and I'm aggravated that I got to be there anyways. It's his insurance. He should have taken care of it all. And we finally get to Aranza. Me and Joseph are standing right there, right to the left. The lady goes, all right, name. But what happened? You pulled your life. Woo, woo. She looks at me, I go, I know, believe me, I'm his daddy. Okay. So she goes, all right, it'll be uh, 300 and something dollars. And so I'm pulling up, I'm just mad. I'm just, you, you know how like, you, you know, when you count money mad, it's like you throw it. it like and so I'm just counting that money out. And these ladies, name, Joseph Hadnaranz or Joseph Hadnaranz. Okay, address, gives address. He goes, race, he goes, white. I looked up and I said, He's a Mexican. He goes, I'm white. I said, I am his daddy. I know his mama. He's a Mexican. That actually happened. Okay. I know he's going to say, wait till I preach about that. I don't care. This is my time now. You can preach about it later. I'm still in counseling. So now... They're halfway through the cookie. <laughs> he takes a bite. She takes a bite. He takes a bite. She takes a bite. They finish the cookie. This man is like just so shocked by what's happening. He, he takes his briefcase and he opens it up to get a book just to remove something from his mind. And there is his cookie. Guess whose cookie they were eating and it was not him that was sharing with her and not saying anything. It was her sharing with him and not saying anything. Oh, yeah. Do you know that happened to me? I, I met Michelle's family when Michelle was 13 and I was 19. So just so you know, she hadn't even blossomed into womanhood. There was nothing there. But I always loved her mother. Her mother and I are very, very, very close. Lived off the same streets. I'd go have coffee with her two or three days a week. We were just very close. I fell in love with her mama, and when I knew I couldn't marry her mama, this is a true story, I married her, because I knew she'd be... <laughs> when I proposed, is what I said. I, I love your mama, and I know you're going to grow up and be just like her, and I can't wait. Will you marry me? Is that a true story? True story. And her moms knew my favorite meal was a Cajun spaghetti, that, 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 there was a Baudouin spirit on that Cajun spaghetti. And I don't know what she did, but she would put these Italian Cajun sausages in there and meatballs and big old gravy. And Man, I'm hungry. Okay, that was my first favorite. My second favorite meal was a crawfish etouffee. She could make a crawfish etouffee. Man, like you can't, matter of fact, Michelle's making that for me. It's waiting for me at home when I leave here. No, you can't have my address. And, and she made the best potato salad. And when she made it, she made it warm. How many like a warm potato salad? Come on, there you go. How many like it cold? Your potato salad even saved. 
You need to throw that thing in a microwave and get that thing baptized. <laughs> so I, I guess probably I was, I don't know, 40. I met them when I was 19. Michelle and I got married when I was 23. And so I know y'all are doing the math. All right. She was 18. She graduated from high school a year early, went to Bible college, came back, proposed to me, and I submitted my body as a willing sacrifice. <laughs> Six children later. So, so I mean, I, and, and her mother, like, the, the children would get mad at her because we were just so close. Is that true? And so... I come and we, she had a table of seats 24 and every Sunday after church, everybody would go regardless of what church they were at. They'd all go and we'd sit down and, and we'd start eating. And, and, and boy, she, she made that crawfish etouffee and she had that French bread from, what was the name of that place around the corner? Lollinay's French bread. And I, I, she had that Lollinay's French bread and it was crispy. And man, I was sitting there and had that potato salad and it was warm. And I just tasted that potato salad. And I, I, me and my daughter, our faces tell everything. It must be a minority thing, I guess. I don't know. And so we're, 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 I went, and I go, what is, what is wrong with this potato salad? So what do you mean? I said, this, this is not your regular potato. I've been eating your potato salad for 20 years. She goes, well, I put green onions in there. I said, green onions? You never put green onions in there. And she looked at me and she said, Jacob, everybody likes green onions but you. I've been fixing it the way you like it for 20 years and everybody else has been eating it. And I went from, why is my... To like, I want to apologize for 20 years to all of y'all. Man was driving down the street and he was in a hurry and somebody was kind of swerving and he was getting angry. What's wrong with them? What, what, what's wrong with the weather? What is wrong with them? Finally, they swerved a little more. He goes, man, I, I, let me just get by this car and I'm going to just drive by them and just mean mug them. Just looking, what is wrong with you? Come on, don't act like you didn't do that on the way to church. And so he goes to pull around and he looks over and he starts mouthing, what's wrong with you? And at that time, he sees a mother who has a toddler that is projectile vomiting all over the mother. And all of a sudden, he goes from, what's wrong with you two? What's wrong with me? We cannot attribute the worst motive to others' actions. If Jesus himself could say, Father, forgive them for what know not what they do, we must do the same thing. You may feel that their motive was to hurt you and that you're not obligated to forgive them, but you're, when you're unwilling to forgive others, it's not an issue between you and them. It's an issue between you and God. It's an issue between you and God because he's the author of the forgiveness. Remember, you're a steward of it. He's the author of it. You know that large prayer that you prayed? Our Father, hallowed be thy, 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 on, as it is in, give us this day our, and forgive us our, our sins, our trespasses. As God, you forgave me when I asked you to forgive me for acting that way. God, I forgive them. You forgave me. I forgive them. You forgave me. I forgive them. And here is the final most important thing as we close. Forgiveness from God is the foundation of my salvation. 
and the releasing of forgiveness to others is the measure of my spiritual maturity. Look at me. I don't forgive others because they deserve it. I forgive them because I received forgiveness I did not deserve. Guy was walking out of the courthouse one day. He sees a buddy walking up into the courthouse and he looks over at him and he said, well, how you doing, man? He said, well, I'm doing, I'm doing all right. He said, I got my HDWI. Guy looks at him and says, well, I hope you get justice. He goes, whoa, 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 whoa. I don't want justice. I want mercy. I want mercy. Forgiveness. When we give mercy to others, we are giving to others what God himself originated and first gave to us. So, Pastor, how, how do I forgive people? That, 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 that it, in my mind, it comes up. It just goes over and over and over. Listen carefully to me. This is, this is really powerful, what I'm about to share. Do you know that demons are one-third of the angels that fell with Satan from heaven? That's what demons are. They are spirits without bodies. Do you know that there is no more demons today than there was when it was just Adam and Eve in the garden? There's no more, there's no, the only person that is a creator is God. The devil is a perverter. He's not the creator. So the devil can't create more demons. Do you know why fentanyl killed 100,000 kids last year? Because all the devil has to do is use one person to create something that addicts an entire generation and his job is done. All he did was sell it to one person. So watch this. So how can the devil influence seven and a half billion people if there's no more demons than there was in the garden? You know how? He allows something to happen to you when you are young. Just one moment. Just one moment. Hand me your phone, Joseph. Look at me. Have you ever recorded something on your phone? Can you imagine recording the worst moment, the worst inflicted trauma and pain that's ever happened to you, whether you were molested, abused, your daddy left, your mama left, a divorce, you walked in on some, you were abused, you got, whatever it was, and recording that and just carrying that around with you wherever you go. And when someone goes, how are you doing? You go, you want to know how I'm doing? Look what happened to me 15 years ago. Who, who would do that? Who, who would do that? The enemy would do that, and his goal is to give you psychosomatic trauma so that you carry it with you all your life, and you're 50 years old, and you can't get over what happened to you when you were 15 years old. So, Pastor, how do I do that? Last three or four minutes, here we go. First John 1, 9 tells us how. Listen to what it says. But if we confess our sins to him, he is and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all wickedness or unrighteousness. So the first thing that I need to do when I do something wrong or I won't forgive others is the number one is I need to confess to God. Do you know what the word confession means in the Greek that the New Testament was written in? It means to say the same. It means, God, you say this is wrong for me not to forgive. I agree with you, it's wrong. God, you say lying is wrong. I confess, I agree with you 
that it's wrong. So the first thing I need to do is confess it. Confess it. Here's the second thing I need to repent. Repent. What does repentance mean? It's a Greek word metanoia. It means to have a change of mind. In a practical way, fleshed out practically, it's to see, to hate, and to turn away from the way that I was doing it to turn to God. To see it, to hate the way I was doing it, and to turn to God. So the second thing is, I repent. And here's the third one, I release. First one, second one, the third one, pastor, how how do I release it? I, I say that I release it, but it doesn't, watch this. Watch the power of this verse. Romans 10, 8 through 10. But what does it say? The word is near you in your, and in your, that is the word of faith that we preach. If you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be. For with the heart man believes unto righteousness and with the confession is made unto So my spirit and my mind and my mouth come into agreement. And every time the enemy pulls up that replay, okay, my spirit, my mind, and my mouth come into agreement. Yeah, but look what they did to you. I know, but I forgive them the same way God forgave me. Yeah, but you don't know what they, yeah, but I forgive them the same way. Yeah, but they're still telling people the story. Yeah, but I forgive them. And you continue going back over and over, just as Jesus said, over and over, he cried out to the father, father, forgive them. Can I tell you something that's going to shock you? Do you know that your mouth can control your thoughts? Huh? How many of you have ever been in the middle of a conversation with somebody and someone goes, hey, hey, hey. You go, what about Hey, 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 hey. What, what? It's a simple question. Okay, what? Okay, where's the dog? Outside. Now, what was I saying? Because whenever your mouth... Okay, gets active in obedience to God with your spirit, it actually retrains your mind. It retrains your mind. So every time it comes up, God, I forgive them. Yeah, but remember what they, God, I release them. God, I've confessed that to you and I release them. And every time it comes up, every time I remind myself of this principle, that I take my sin to the cross and believe that God forgives me of that. And those that sin against me, I take that same sin to the cross and believe that the same blood of Jesus that was shed to cover my sin and forgive it is the same blood of Jesus that was shed to cover their sin against me. And I forgive it. Look at me. Because in every crowd like this, there's always somebody going, but you don't know what they did, Pastor. You don't know. Look at me. I don't. I don't. I was molested as a child. My mother looked at me and said, I liked you better when you were on drugs after I gave my life to Christ. My father told me I was responsible for wrecking his marriages. When I was 16 years old, my my, 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 my stepmother, third stepmother, grabbed him and said, you're killing him, Frank. Can't you see what you're doing to him? I'm just telling you, it hasn't all been peaches and roses. But listen carefully to me. 
What a joy it is to be able to say, because I have been forgiven of so much, I can take my father's sin, my sister, my brother, and I can lay it at the same cross and the same blood of Jesus that was shed to atone for my sin is the same blood that was atoned for theirs too. It was. Would you bow your head with me a moment? And let's just wait on the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit, come right now. I have the ability to speak the words that I believe that you've given me from your word, but, but you have the ability, Holy Spirit, to tailor make this message for all the people that are here today, for every one of them. For hundreds and hundreds, you have the ability to speak specifically to them, to bring people up before them, to bring things that happened to them in their upbringing, their childhood, in their business, in their marriage, in their relationships. You have the ability to bring it up right away and to show them what they need to release. So I want everyone here, I want you to lay your hands on your lap and open your palms of your hands And while you're doing that, I want you to close your fist now. And I want to ask you this question. Who have you held forgiveness from? Who have you held forgiveness from? The Holy Spirit's job is to bring to your remembrance right now those people, those circumstances, those situations. Okay. Now that he's done that, if you want to release them, I want you to pray this with me. Still keep your fists clenched. I want you to pray this with me. Dear Lord Jesus, I confess to you that I've sinned. That what you have freely given me Because of your sacrifice, I have not given to others. Forgive me. I repent. I see that I've been wrong. I hate that I've been. And I turn to you. Right now. Right now. I release. And I want you to open up your hands. And now under your breath, I want you to name the people that you're releasing. Name the people that you're releasing right now. <sighs> Keep naming them as long as the Holy Spirit brings them to you. <sighs> Come on, keep naming them. He's digging up things in your heart that you've tried to bury, that have caused compulsive habits, that have caused things that come out of you that you don't even understand why. Now let's go on. I release them today 
in the name of Jesus. With my mind and with my heart and with my spirit, I declare that the blood of Jesus was enough to pay for their sins and for mine. Today, I release them. Every time their name comes up, I will release them again. Every time their thought comes up for what they've done to me and others I love, I will release them. Today, I am free. They are free. For whom the sun sets free is free indeed. Now just take a deep breath. Holy Spirit, just sweep across this place and seal your work on every heart. <sighs> on every heart. On every heart. Every heart. Every heart. And now with every head bowed and every eye closed, I want to ask you the most important question of your life. Jesus said to a religious man named Nicodemus, unless a man or woman is born again, they will not see the kingdom of heaven. Unless a man or woman is born again, they will not enter into the kingdom of heaven. You say, Pastor, what does that mean? When Adam and Eve ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, they died spiritually. And every since then, every person born since then has been born spiritually dead. You can bring your body to church. You can read things in the Bible. But until you become spiritually alive, that happens the moment you trust Jesus as your Lord and Savior. And you are what the Bible calls born again. I never think of a waking moment in my life I didn't believe in Jesus. But when I was 14 and a half, I prayed with an African-American counselor in my junior high school. And that day I was born again. And the old Jacob died and Christ came to live inside me and he raised me from the spiritually dead just as if he had physically. I had the power to forgive for the first time, the power to let go of the bitterness and hurt and pain for the first time and the power to overcome hurts, habits, and hangups in my life for the first time. Have you been born again? You say, Pastor, I've been christened, I've been baptized, I've joined the church. Isn't that good enough? That's a good start, but that's not what Jesus said. He said, you must be born again. So in these last two minutes... Christians pray. These last two minutes, if you're here today and you go, Pastor, I believe in God and I believe in Jesus, but I've never prayed to be born again. I'm like you were. I, I, I've never prayed to be born again. I believe in God. I believe in Jesus, but I've never prayed to be born again. It only happens once, just like the day you were born. But you say, Pastor, today, would you pray for me? I want to be born again today. I'm going to count to three. And on the count of three, if that's you, I just want you to raise your hand high and put it back down. And I'm going to pray for you right at your seat, right where you are. I'm not going to embarrass you. I'm not going to do anything other than pray for you right where you are. I'm the only one that's looking. On three, raise your hand if that's what you desire. Number one, God brought you here. Nothing's ever an accident. Number two, through this message, God has been talking to you. And you know it's God. The circumstances of this last two weeks have led up to this moment. And now is your moment to be born again. Three, if that's you, lift your hand high. Lift it high. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve, thirty, forty, fifty, six, seven, eight, nineteen, twenty, one, twenty-two, twenty-three, twenty-four, twenty-five, twenty-six, twenty-seven, twenty-eight, twenty-nine, thirty, thirty-one, thirty-two, thirty-three, thirty-four, thirty-five. Put your hands down. Last five seconds, Pastor, I didn't raise my hand with these 35, but my heart's about to beat out of my chest. I know God's talking to me. I don't know why I'm afraid. 
I know it's what I need. I didn't raise my hand, but I should have. Raise it and wave it at me this last time. I'm asking for you. Wave it at me. Yes, I see your hand. All right. Now, church, let's pray out loud with all of those that raise their hand to be born again. We're going to join you in praying this prayer to be born again together. Let's pray. Church, dear Lord Jesus, I believe you're the Son of God. I believe that on the cross, you took my guilt, my sin, and my shame, and you died for it. I believe you faced hell for me so I would not have to go. And you rose from the dead to give me a place in heaven, a purpose on earth, in a relationship with your Father. Today, Lord Jesus, I turn away from sin to be born again. Today, God is my Father, Jesus is my Savior, and I'm born again in Jesus' name. Amen.